All right. Good afternoon and or good morning, depending on where you are in the world. Um, welcome to the stream. Uh, so for anyone that was curiously waiting for it on Monday, I think it was, um, we've moved it to once a week, which means we're going to be doing two topics at once, which means we have to be doubly as diligent around uh, making sure that we kind of stick to a time frame, which is uh, never going to happen at all. So uh, I don't even know why we're going to pretend that's a thing. Uh, but I just want to make sure over on the... Um, YouTube live stream now that people can um, that people can hear us that uh, everything's coming through fine some kind of indication would be fantastic um, but while we're waiting for whoever it is to to say that we'll go through the introductions okay there we go I'm gonna take that as I'm gonna take that as we're in business yeah hey, I checked um, it Wait, cool. it's so, all good yep it's all good beautiful so most of us um, are all pretty familiar with the rest of the um, stream guests here uh, Matthias captain lock obviously senior moderator so from the discord server both have um, a, a very uh, substantial history in fields and they bring a lot to the table in terms of um, you know uh, knowledge on, on on various subjects and uh, Matthias was so kind as to um, sit on our last Q&A stream and, and get berated for, uh, you know, an hour of relentless questions about how exactly he thinks, a, you know, an anarcho-capitalist society could work. And um, I don't know, he's made the, the poor decision of, of deciding to come back. So he's either very brave or um, or very, very good at, uh, you know, being here with the, the right answers to the right questions. Um, we do have a, a new um, guest on the stream. Um, basic background in um, uh, private equity, uh, but I'll let you, Econ Gamer, uh, introduce yourself. Just give us a, a rundown of what it is that who who you are and what you do. Hey guys, so I'm an international investor. Have invested in a couple of different countries, Hong Kong being one of them. And as EE said, I'm in private equity, and I also do a blog posts about a variety of economic issues, primarily focused on monetary policy and wealth inequality um so yeah i'll hand it back to ee beautiful cool uh, and it's really good to have someone with specific knowledge on i uh, would like you know obviously the markets and and especially for you know things like hong kong where um you know their financial market almost is you know the defining force of uh, of what hong kong is so uh obviously there will be some great insights there uh, now, obviously, the topics at hand, uh, there's two of them today, so Hong Kong and France. Now, this is, for the most part, a Q&A session. Um, so the idea is that, obviously, if you guys have uh, questions or anything that you want to run by us, um, that's what we're here for. We've got, you know, five people with with a good amount of insight onto the subject, um, so we're there to, to answer the kind of questions. Now, um, easiest way to sort of get them is we do have some, some pre-bottled ones, but um, I think the easiest way is to... Um, you know, just post them in the YouTube live chat there. So long as we see them, um, we'll bring them up here on our screen and, and we can discuss it from there. Uh, if you have really, really fantastic questions, who knows? Or maybe we'll even drag you onto it. Um, but I want to sort of kick it off, I suppose, with uh, with Hong Kong, um, because obviously it was the most recent one. And it's one of those, well, I suppose, economies, not countries, um, that is kind of really interesting, um, especially in the context of today. Um, and I suppose probably the easiest way to get everyone's um, position or opinion on this is um, what do you foresee the the future of Hong Kong as being um, in light of, you know, what we see the handover to China um, and their increasing authority in the region, uh, you know, the riots in response to that coronavirus and, you know, obviously the impact that that's going to have on its industry uh, as well as, you know, 
uh, mounting competition from mainland China and other, uh, you know, economic players like let's say Singapore. Um, you know, it's it's very easy to be pessimistic, but uh, I'd be interested to sort of see what your opinions would be. Uh, I'll start off with you, uh, Mahathir. What would what would you say? Well, I mean, Hong Kong is kind of interesting because um, it, and the the current uh, job of the um, uh, of Hong Kong in the context of China is sort of as a pressure valve for the mainland economy. Um, and I, I don't see that position being something that they're going to to take away from it uh, because it's very useful for not just for the Chinese economy, but in particular for the ruling class and economy to have Hong Kong. Um, so I don't think the task of Hong Kong is going to change very much. I mean, it's very focused on financial services and uh, it's going to, to keep being relevant in that sense for the decades to come. Um, uh, so yeah, I think the position of Hong Kong is still very good, and uh, I, yeah, I, I don't see any reason for that to change. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So a bit more of an optimist, which I think is, uh, which is good, and and obviously probably pretty fair to be honest. Uh, Locke, what what would your sort of thoughts be? Where would you, if you were a if you were a gambling man, where would you put it at? So I would agree with Matthias, at least out for the next like 10, 15 years. But beyond that, honestly, it's. It's anyone's guess. Uh, China is going to be China, and they're going to do what they do, which is, you know, expand their sphere of influence. And oh, hey, look, right next door, there is this place that's very successful and uh, very important, and it's literally on our doorstep. And also, it is part of China. Uh, so why not continue to exert authority over uh, Hong Kong and? you know, make sure that their interests are aligned with uh, China's interests. And with that being said, um, we you have a population uh, in Hong Kong that might not see eye to eye with uh, the Chinese state, and they might not be so willing uh, to go along with uh, China's plans. But at the end of the day, China is going to do what it wants to do, similar to how uh, America in, in the past has done what it wants to do as, as the global uh, powerhouse. Now that China is a competing rival as a global powerhouse, um, they get to really set the stage. Uh, they get to choose what actors they want on the, on the field. And if they have plans for Hong Kong, uh, I mean, they're coming. Yeah, beautiful. All right. And um, now... Um... To, to to make the stretch of calling investing gambling, uh, I suppose Econ Gamer, you you literally would be a gambling man if you're uh, obviously investing into Hong Kong. So uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, obviously from the position of someone that's um, you know directly exposed to this market. Yeah, definitely. And I'm actually pairing my positions in Hong Kong because uh, I think that Hong Kong is no longer going to be the gatekeeper to China in the future. Um, and that's primarily because of the authoritarian stance that China has begun to exert, especially with the latest national security law. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, the antagonism with America. I mean, the only real reason that Hong Kong has not grown for authoritarian is because China has been relying on outside capital investment through Hong Kong, through those um additional investor protections. The point is, though, is that if Hong Kong stops being 
for the most part autonomous, then there's no real ins- then there's no safety of investing in them, and that's the whole reason why the Shanghai Exchange isn't as big is because people don't want to invest in China because of the inherent risks in it. So because of these um, political maneuverings by China, I expect that we're going to see uh, investment out of Hong Kong. And I think the only reason we haven't seen as much as we'd like is also because of uh, the strict capital controls that China has in place on the mainland. Um, So yeah, in short, I'm actually pretty bearish on Hong Kong in the future. Okay, there we go. So, so, you mentioned those. Uh, oh, the sorry, I, wow, I just had the, I had the thought, and now it just no, no, good. Um, so with um, capital protection or the um, you know investors capital uh, controls, ca- capital controls, and but investors' uh, rights within uh, China. Do you know of uh, what those are, and what role does Hong Kong play in protecting uh, foreign investors' rights? Sure, and Hong Kong. Uh, provides a significantly more transparency regarding uh, financial statements than China does. So, and that's sort of the the running joke of Chinese companies is that if you buy a Chinese company, you have no idea if you actually bought uh, an empty plot of glass somewhere or a huge industrial complex. Um, whereas in Hong Kong, they actually take steps to ensure that the company is what they say it is. And that's a big part of the issue. Now, regarding shareholder rights, we do have a re- Hong Kong stocks in general typically trade at a lower valuation than Western stocks. Um, and that's less because the companies aren't trustworthy and more because uh, it's very hard to unlock the value of those companies since m- most of them were created by incredibly wealthy individuals who still own a majority stake or a controlling stake in the company, uh, which means that it's very hard to petition for increased dividends or uh, sales of non-core assets, uh, which is also the problem that we see in Japan that leads to lower stock valuations there as well. Um, And a personal anecdote is I used to own a gambling company centered in Macau. Uh, which was traded on the Hong Kong exchange. And this company had more cash on its books than its total liabilities plus market cap, which pretty much meant that they could actually buy themselves out and have cash left over. And they gave a good dividend, but the uh, the issue was you had to discount all of the assets because there's no real point to owning the assets if you're never going to use them. So the returns on capital are absolutely abysmal. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I love these kinds of weird curiosities and especially things like that. It's like, uh, okay, we've got a shit ton of cash right here, um, but we're never going to be able to do anything with it. And because we're never going to be able to do anything with it and because the person that does have the say on whether we do anything with it isn't going to do anything with it, uh, it's actually worth less than, than what it is. Um, which is a very, very confusing and, and, and a roundabout way of explaining exactly what it is that you did. But um, yeah, I think um, in, investing is uh, a weird and wild thing. And um, I just sort of wanted to pipe up and say uh, that, that weird curiosities like that, uh, man, that that is so entertaining to me. Maybe I'm just an incredibly boring person, but uh, I love stuff like that. But um, the takeaway here is we've kind of got a tie between two pessimists and two optimists. So Rathio, you are the tiebreaker. Where do you sit? 
don't put that much light on me. Come on. Well, I, I think I would agree with mm, more with Mafias than just because I trust him more. <laughs> than me? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, you're never going oh, on, back onto the stream again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, don't be... Don't be well, I mean, I, I can clarify my position maybe a little yeah. bit. I mean, the, so so the, the, the purpose of Hong Kong, from my point of view, is, is not just uh, to provide in, investor protections, which obviously, I mean, that's something that's a benefit to investors. But um, I think maybe the point you're missing with uh, the point of of the of like how they make money in Hong Kong is that um, a lot of the um, the purpose of the Hong Kong economy is to act as um, the the binding link between the mainland economy and the rest of the world. So uh, the reason that they actually have Hong Kong and the reason that they haven't really touched it that much, um, and I don't believe that they're going to uh, to actually touch it much much more than just uh the things that matter in terms of like for example being able to extradite uh people they want to extradite from hong kong and so on obviously they're not going to allow like full-on democracy to to exist there so we we agree about that but i don't think that it's in mainland china's interest first of all to make it a worse place to invest for investors and secondly i don't think that uh, mainland china will want to open up their mainland economy to investors because opening up your mainland economy to investors also makes it more difficult to uh, to to um, enforce the capital controls on the mainland, and mm -hmm. they're not going to want to do that for uh, the foreseeable future, at least the next couple of decades. Um, and this is the basic reason why I don't think that Hong Kong is going to be less important in the next 10, 20 years. Um, and there's also other considerations like, um, um, you know, Hong, Hong Kong is, um, uh, aside from being, you know, a way to enact the or to enforce the capital controls on the mainland, it's also um, the, um, as you correctly pointed out, the place that uh, outside investors put money into to the, to the mainland economy. Um, and the choice really for um, for mainland China here is not between having people invest directly into mainland China um, or in uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, the choice is actually going to be between uh, Hong Kong or some Western country. Um, so if they start making it so that investing in Hong Kong is uh, effectively the same thing as investing uh, directly in main, mainland China, it's going to lead to Western investors requiring uh, companies to be registered outside of Hong Kong and outside of mainland China. So that'll, that'll lead to uh, Chinese companies actually having to be founded in, say, Delaware or England or Singapore or one of these other countries. More like HSBC move, you know, the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation now headquartered in London, England. Yeah, I mean, that that's also going to be a result of it because um, obviously shareholders in HSBC are not going to want uh, that company to be beholden to the Chinese company or Chinese government directly. Uh, yeah. th this goes both for them, but also for all of the investment funds that are based out of Hong Kong and 
um, you know, and any other company that's that's located out of Hong Kong currently. So, yeah. it, so I, I mean, and then you also have to consider on top of that that one of the big reasons that Hong Kong exists still and and will continue to exist, in my opinion, is that the the ruling elite in China wants it to exist. Because while they don't want the average Chinese person to be able to get money out of China, they do want to get their own money out. And Hong Kong is exactly where they where they route their money through. Yeah, you probably yeah. Hey, maybe you you you're right. Uh, it's not really the the will of economic forces or the will of uh, you know popular demand. It's the will of the the wealthy elite. And <laughs> I know it's yes. kind of a cynical view, but uh, it's probably not an incorrect one. So we'll, we'll I think the takeaway from this is we'll call it a, we'll call it a tie from our panel here. That uh, you know we're optimistic slash pessimistic, uh, and I'll call that effective. Um, Effective hiring of panel guests here from my part because I've um, somehow managed to luck into splitting it effectively down the middle. So um, definitely not luck. 100% definitely forethought on my behalf, right? Uh, But yes, yeah, there we go. Now, one thing I actually just want to circle back to um, just out of my own uh, curiosity, it's absolutely nothing, well, kind of to do with Hong Kong. So we can can make that work, Um, which is Econ Gamer, that company that you were talking about, um, the gambling company that had more cash on its books than uh, it had a higher net worth than market capitalization, um, which to explain to um, you know to explain to to the viewers in in sort of layman's terms, uh, we were talking about a company that might have had a uh, billion dollars in cash just sitting there. Um, let's just say for simplicity, it had no debts, um, so it was had a net worth of a billion dollars as a corporation. Um, but you could buy all of the shares in the company for $500 million. Um, seems stupid, right? Because you should, in theory, just be able to buy up you know, $500 million worth of shares and uh, and then get yourself a free $1 billion, even if you don't want the company to continue trading anymore. You can just strip it for assets. Um, now, companies like this do exist um, in, in the world today. Um, you know, they're, they're rare and um, they're, they're, you know, sort of not... Um, you know, they're not particularly easy to find, but they do exist. And uh, and actually, I, I believe, I don't know if it's if it's anecdote or, or hearsay, but that's how, you know, Warren Buffett um, really got his head start in the investing world, finding companies that had uh, lower valuation than their, um, than their assets. But uh, in this kind of case, it sounds like it was no big secret. Now, the one thing I want to take away is the um, reliance on having that much cash in a gambling company. Um, was that inclusive of, of being able to to settle all of its you know deposits you know because oftentimes if you have you know chips uh, handed out in a casino or if it's like a sports gambling company people you know are effectively putting deposits into this institution is that is that inclusive of that or is that a sort of a separate account uh yeah that's a separate account um and so what i find truly amazing too is that not only do they have more cash on their books than the total liabilities plus market cap but they also had an incredibly profitable core business, um, which was where most of the, the dividend income came from. They did 50% of their um, profits from the actual casino. Uh, so they were trading at about 10 times earnings. And then the rest of it was just this constantly growing cash pile that they did nothing with. Although, to be fair, a good chunk of it um, was... I think like 20% of it was tied up in China due to capital controls. Um, And then also, I don't know for a fact, but I'm like pretty sure that the company uh, did some money laundering or something, which is what most of Macau is. 
Yeah, which so. was, I, I've actually uh, discussed this before on the channel, which was the one that I was going to get to. It's, it's not really Hong Kong, it's Macau now. But yeah, well, you know, look, they're, they're, they're both similar, I suppose. One has investment banks, one has casinos, but they're all effectively do the same thing. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of it just sort of held up in, in money laundering through like, uh, you know, the, you know, buy your uh, casino package kind of things to get money out of the country. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? Really, Are uh, you familiar with what, what what's been going on in Cambodia as well with gambling? Uh, no, no, run it by me because I always love I love hearing about these sorts of schemes that people get up to. It's just great. So it's also the Chinese, of course, right? But um, <laughs> of course, so <laughs> there's this gambling town on um, the border where uh, Chinese people go to, and then. Um, uh, so gambling is not uh, legal there, and obviously the Chinese people are not allowed to to go in there with the explicit purpose to to gamble, but they are allowed to buy fruit. So there's these companies that have been set up on this border town where when you want to gamble, you go on to a site where all of these fruit vendors are, and then you buy fruit, and then you get uh, chips instead of fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously, you, so like fun. you just do, um, like you maybe play a little bit of, of uh, blackjack or whatever, and then you cash it out into US dollars, and that that's how they launder money. So uh, the the but uh, the the fruit is exchangeable for for US dollars or something like that. I'm like, God, isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, got got a lot of them. Like, I mean, uh, it's creative if nothing else. It's one of those uh, one of those things. But you know, effectively, I suppose in many ways, a casino or even like an online sports gambling company or anything like that, are, you know, they're, they're effectively just um, you know like a, an investing institution. You know, similar in many ways to to having a brokerage account. Uh, you're going to deposit some cash into it. You obviously make a few calculated risks for returns or losses, and then you pull your money out of it eventually. Um, so they're really no different in, in sort of raw, um, you know, structure than you know other yeah. financial institutions. It's just that normally people sort of see them as this fun, um, like little tourist attraction or um, or something that they aren't. But but they're deposit-taking institutions, so um, it's quite quite funny That's, to sort of see these. Say. As you say, right, uh, avoiding tax evasion is the only uh, profitable intellectual pursuit. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> Matthews would probably uh, have something to say about that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, hey, maybe, maybe you're right. Agree. Um, <laughs> all right. So I want to get into a question. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for that, Econ Gamer. That's, that's a really interesting tangent. But I won't get distracted with it too much longer <laughs> because I know I just, like, I'll spend two hours on it and then we'll be like, oh, no time for France. Um, Beautiful. Now, I did have a question here that I thought was good, and I'll bring it up. Uh, could have been better answered. Uh, what about tourism, though? Question mark. Um, and I think this is a really interesting one as it relates to uh, Hong Kong, because obviously, uh, you know, the primary industry of the the other region is you know, finance. It's you know, investment banks. Uh, you know, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange raising capital that's what you do in hong kong um that is where it makes a majority of its money uh and that sort of delivers a majority of the the nate oh, sorry i'm gonna keep on trying to call it a nation but uh, special economic zones wealth um but obviously tourism can't be completely disregarded because uh it is still uh for starters a very profitable industry and something that up until recently has been a pretty significant significant component of uh, the country's wealth uh, not only sort of directly, but uh, indirectly through 
um, you know, Hong Kong International Airport, which is a, which is a central hub for you know the region. Now, uh, I did touch on this briefly throughout the video, but maybe I got sort of uh, I was focused too much on on the financial aspect of it, which uh, which may very well have been a mistake. But uh, I'll pass it over to anyone that wants to sort of um, give their thoughts on this because I think it's a really really interesting component. Um, what do you sort of see happening with with Hong Kong's tourism? Obviously, in light of coronavirus, where it's effectively gone to zero. Um, you know, there's no people entering the country at all um, or, you know, even sort of out into the future with, with these riots ongoing and, um, you know, sort of the tensions that, that ensue from that. Where do, you, where do you see that kind of going, um, you know, medium to long term? Yeah, so I would, um, we, we know that the tourism is not doing well right now, but uh, we have to understand that uh, in Hong Kong, tourism is, you know, 5% of the economy, which sounds small. Uh, but actually, I want to I want to see what that is in comparison to like other uh, Asian uh, nations. Uh, it's pretty Asian. pretty significant to to most countries, you yeah. know, outside of extreme cases like let's say uh, France and stuff like that, which <laughs> hey we'll get yep. on to. Um, but it's pretty pretty significant, um, you know, by virtue of the fact that I suppose it's 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 a relatively small and for all the other things that you know, tourism is a big thing there. Um, but I suppose the takeaway there is. Um, hey, you know, 5% sounds like a relatively incidental figure, but if your economy lost 5% of its, you know, uh, GDP overnight, that would put most most nations into a recession. It would. It, it would. Um, now, we're assuming that the, the tourism, I'm hoping that these metrics that I'm looking at, uh, the tourism is not, you know, counting like local tourism, like people who live in Hong Kong, who are Hong Kong residents, who are buying things uh, in Hong Kong uh, that would otherwise, you know, fall under tourism. Because in that sense, then there are like, hopefully, uh, you know, foreign uh, foreigners don't make up 100% of tourism. Now, I, I just need to find like the actual their actual definition, though, for tourism. Do you know, uh, Walk me through, like the uh, from the economist perspective, like their definitions of tourism. Uh, normally, normally it's spending from outside the region. Okay. Um, so if you're talking about tourism, um, let's well, Hong Kong, it's a bit different because the whole, you know, the whole region is basically one big city, right? So it's really kind of hard to be a, a tourist in your own city. Um, if you're talking about, like, let's say a, a country like Australia, um, if I was to go from from Sydney, where I live, to uh, Melbourne, and you know, uh, you know, spend a night in a hotel room and eat at a restaurant, I would be considered a tourist because I'm sort of outside of my um, normal region. Um, and and of course, if I was to go to another country and do the same thing, then, then I'm absolutely a tourist. Um, but it's really really hard to um, class someone I would imagine from Hong Kong as as being a, a tourist, um, just because you know geographically it's all within sort of standard commuting distance. Yeah, so we're we're in that in that case, then we're looking at a solid five percent uh, from foreign uh, foreign tourism. Um, so yeah, with the complete shutdown of that, that is not looking good. That is that is it'll terrifying. return pretty quickly afterwards, though, because um, tourism in Hong Kong is driven by finance. Like the reason that people go to Hong Kong is, for example. Like uh, you run a company in Hong Kong, you need to you know go to the bank to sign some documents once a year or whatever. Um, See, I was going to say that, but I wanted just to wait for to somebody also else to be say in the it. city for like a week after it, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, so. and that's interesting, obviously, business, business tourism. Uh, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, it, it's not you know necessarily fun, but hey, uh, rain, hail or shine, if you need to go to the bank to sign those documents, you need to go to the bank to sign those documents. It's not like, ah, well, you know, there's a few rights, but uh, maybe I'm going to call it off. You know, oftentimes those sort of things need to, need to be done, uh, whether it's fun or not. And oftentimes those kinds of tourists bring a lot more money. Uh, oftentimes, you know, they're talking about tourists that are going on the corporate dime rather than their own dime. So if it's, you know, uh, if it's going to be a five-star hotel, yeah, no worries. That's fine. I'll just use it on the corporate card. Uh, if it's, you know, business class air travel for, through Cathay Pacific, yep, no worries. We can make that happen as well. Um, sometimes there's a big benefit to those sorts of um, sorts of roles. But on the flip side, um, hey, you know, maybe with this sort of push to everyone working from home, you know, uh, a lot of companies being forced into integrating, um, you know, virtual meetings and stuff like that. Uh, do you think maybe the end result of a lot of this kind of stuff that I suppose people have been strong-armed into to having to do right now um, will lead to, you know, less, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Corporate, not corporate retreats. Business uh, travel. Yeah, business travel. There's, there's a conferencing, like, uh, you know, conferences, foreign conferences and things like that. Um, do you see that sort of happening, uh, even as a way to sort of cut down on expenses? Anecdotally, I mean, it's something that's kind of, I think, been pushed, um, you know, over the last 10 years anyway. You know, I've gone from, um, you know, been very fortunate to, to be able to travel, you know, sort of probably 12 times a year. There wouldn't be a, a month where I'd go without um, some form of business travel to, um now where it's like it's kind of quite rare for me to to go any time in a year um i don't know if that's because i've become less important or more important or um they just don't want to send me overseas because i'm too expensive who knows but um you know do you see that sort of mm. being with, with, the, um, with the finance related tourism i don't think so because the you have to remember that regulatory speaking in international law the alternative to going to hong kong and signing those documents is having them officially apostilled by um the um the what's it called um the uh, office of foreign affairs of your country under the Hague convention um so i really oh, don't think yeah. that uh like I, I don't think that that's going to happen in the short term um the only way to really avoid doing that is uh, once uh, every country in the world has um implemented some kind of of um uh, digital signature that uh, all other countries are also happy with and then you need to make basically a hard convention versus uh, version two uh, that uh, starts recognizing digital signatures rather than simply uh, um, uh, notary signed documents um, that are then apostilled by the office of foreign affairs uh, so yeah I, I don't think that's going to happen within like the immediate future maybe in like 10 or 15 years yeah but uh, matthews brings up a, a, a great point but i i would push back that there's something sexy about traveling uh for a business uh, especially like a high-end one uh you know if you go going to close a deal or something you want to go to that uh because it's almost bragging rights uh you want to take photos of it it's like uh you know the deal toys that they have uh, the investment banks have for closings uh you know you get those not because uh, they are um, like important, but but because well, because uh, you want to use them as as bragging rights. You want to use them as uh, to showcase them off, and uh, also you know do a little self promotion. 
uh, if there's, if, there's also a cultural component to it in exactly. Asia, showing face. I mean, just exactly. as they have, you know, the concept of saving face, they also have the concept of showing face. Where, like, when you're um, when you're first getting into business with with somebody in Asia, you really have to meet them in person, and it's typically like I've I've done a lot of business in in Asia, and it, it'll typically for for a big deal, it'll end up with me having to be there for like two weeks and meet up with dinner for uh, like every single night for those two weeks to close a deal. Um, it, it that's just how it works in Asia. Yeah, and I think there, there, there's obviously a lot to be said to that because I was going to say, look, obviously a counterpoint to, to your initial argument was, um, you know, obviously there are some some very, very senior people, business owners, uh, corporate executives that would actually need to go and physically sign documents. But um, obviously uh, the tourism industry isn't isn't 100% run on people that need to go and sign documents. I'd imagine that those people are <laughs> no, probably a relatively insignificant margin compared to the people that are just there to, you know, basically go on, on corporate junkets, right? Um, hey, you know, we're sending you to the office in Hong Kong, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of it's to go to, to a, you know, a, a workshop or, or something like that. But most of it's, hey, you know, um, good job, have fun, um, which I think a lot of these corp this corporate, corporate travel is. Now, outside of that, um, still also must be remembered that um, I would say a fair majority of the money that is coming from um, tourism, quote unquote, in, in Hong Kong um, is actually sort of layover tourism. That the fact that you know Hong Kong International Airport, uh, similar in many ways to Singapore's International Airport, is such a central um, hub for the region, um, that people just sort of happen to spend a day or so in Hong Kong because it's you know it's a pit stop on their way to Japan or China or you know anywhere else that they might be going in the region. Um, actually, Econ Gamer, do you have any kind of insight into whether that's right or if I'm just sort of speaking out of turn here? It's, what's your thoughts there? Sure. So um, in general in terms of Hong Kong tourism. Uh, Matthias, I actually agree with you heavily that it's linked to uh, business travel, which is, I guess, why I'm the ever pessimist in the group, because I'm bearish on the business prospects of Hong Kong in the future. So I see tourism drying up from uh, that being a major headwind. But also, um, you get a lot of mainland tourism. Uh, I'd say even just as much as layover tourism. And China has substantially built up its cities on the mainland where 10, 20 years ago, uh, Hong Kong was the place to be. And Hong Kong people were kind of treated like, um, I guess, I don't want to say superiors, but they had a bit of a superiority complex relative to mainland China. Whereas now that... Uh, the mainland has built up its own mega cities. You're seeing a lot less of that, and there's no longer as big a need to go to Hong Kong to experience that sort of luxury lifestyle living. Uh, so I see those as being two major headwinds. Um, and then once again, also, if we start to see a major crackdown on the rights of travelers into Hong Kong, which could happen. I mean, we saw that the British ambassador got arrested, uh, I think like half a year ago. Um, then we may even see people trying to circumvent going through Hong Kong as a layover just in case they end up like uh, Joshua Wong when he got arrested in the airport. Yeah, yeah, that's something they couldn't be. Um, it, it sounds very abstract and, and, you know, it's like, ah, that doesn't really sound like it would be a thing. But uh, you know, if you if you cast your mind back, or um, oh, and even if we use it as a hypothetical, 
um, you know, not many people would want to do a layover in Baghdad, right? Because they feel insecure about it. Now, I'm not saying that Hong Kong's ever going to become Baghdad, but if it has a history of, you know, people kind of getting caught up in funny business, uh, people are going to go, oh, yeah, you know, no, no thanks. I would actually just rather catch Singapore Airlines and, and, and stop over in Singapore or, um, you know, uh, stop over in the UAE through, through Emirates or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, I think um, that's a, a very, very real, real possibility. All right. Now, uh, we're 36 minutes into it. I want to try to pivot to um, France because otherwise we're never going to get around to it because there's so much to talk about with Hong Kong. Um, but... Um, uh, okay, okay, cool. If you do have any questions still about Hong Kong, um, feel free to post them in the YouTube live chat. I'm sure we're going to bounce back and forth to them for a little while. Um, but um, we are going to get on to we are going to get on to France now. So um, the big thing that I want to sort of bring up uh, with France, and, and hopefully everyone's already seen the videos and, and has you know sort of lots of opinions about it. Uh, apparently, there was someone coming on to the YouTube live stream that was from France and said uh, they had lots and lots of problems with the video, which is fantastic, which means we can go through it and discuss uh, accordingly. I hope they're um, here. Yeah, I didn't actually sort of see them, but that's all right. We, we can sort of get into our uh, sort of answering the questions, hopefully. Um, now, uh, France is a really interesting country for a lot of reasons. Obviously, it has a very, very rich history and, uh, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, in many ways sort of set the standard for the world that we live in today. Um, but of course, you know, in the modern world, it's one of those sort of things that uh, it probably doesn't attract as much attention as, you know, the, the big heavy hitters in, in the EU. Germany is, you know, sort of like the, the big global force or uh, the UK is the, the petulant child that's, that's storming out or, or Greece, which is just, I don't know, sitting in the corner eating glue. Um, it, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things that it, it sails under the radar just a, a little bit, which is, um, I suppose, in many ways, probably a good thing for the country. But um, sort of annoying for us because I think it's a really, really great case study of a lot of um, a lot of things. Now, um, Europe in general is one of those um, kind of uh, difficult things to really um, look at objectively. In, in many ways, um, there's just so much going on, and it's such a you know very, very developed region with so many players in such a tight area, um, with lots and lots of you know, industries and, and different kind of performance between different nations um, that it's almost impossible to kind of predict. But um, as a general overarching statement, where would you guys say that you sit um, with the, the future prosperity of Europe and, and I suppose by extension um, uh, France, you know, in light of things like Brexit, in light of things like the Eurozone crisis of, you know, what, what was normally, a, you know, what it was really a decade ago now, um, where do you think it's going to be in... 10, 20 years from now. Uh, Mathis, I'll hand over to you. Mm. <clears throat> so have you seen the, um, the, new, the new report that just came out here in, in June from uh, Deutsche Bank yet? No, but run me through it. Well, they, the, the key takeaway, I think, is uh, one chart, actually. Um, the title of it is um, the rising share of companies with debt servicing costs that are higher than profits. Um, and um, it turns out that up until January 31st, uh, it's uh, roughly 20% of companies in uh, the US and Europe now that uh, are what they term zombie firms. Uh, and this is before the effects of, of coronavirus, of course, is, is factored in. 
Um, so I don't think it's out of bounds to to think that in uh, across Europe that uh, the number of zombie firms is roughly around 30% at least now. Um, and it's definitely worse in the southern part of Europe than it is in the northern part of Europe. So it's not um, completely... Um, uh, I, th I think it's pretty realistic, actually, that it's something like 35 to 40% of companies, for example, in Italy and Spain that are zombie companies now, um, i.e. they don't actually have um, enough profits to service their debt. Um, and obviously, given that in Europe we have a single currency um, inside of the Eurozone, uh, and also countries like Denmark have locked their currency to the euro. Uh, the result of this is going to be that there'll be a fight between uh, northern countries where the, um, the ratio of zombie co companies is uh, lower than it is in the south um, and the south. There's going to be a fight between them about how much money is going to have to be printed for stimulus. Uh, because that's how obviously the economy works right now, right? Every time that there is uh, an issue that can be solved with printing money, they print money. Um, so I think there's probably, it's going to land somewhere in the range of whatever the amount of money that's necessary in Germany to fix this problem is. That's the amount of money that will be printed. And that will result in a ton of companies in the South going bankrupt, which will result in massive unemployment, especially youth unemployment. And that's going to result in that uh, we'll see more Brexits across Southern Europe. And and you, uh, a few things that I want to discuss with that, because it's really interesting. And, and of course, now we're talking about Europe, but um, but that's okay. I mean, I think... Uh, it goes for France Europe, as well. Yeah, France is kind of like, if anything, probably the, the middleman. It's not quite as responsible as, let's say, you know, um, you know the, the proper northern countries like uh, Germany, Austria... Um, Sweden, all those sorts of um, uh, sort of places, but um, it's not quite as irresponsible as your Italy's and your Greece's and your Spain's and all that. Um, now, I could be—I uh, know that's that's a massive oversimplification, but um, realistically, it's probably true. Um, so, you know, make of that what you will. Now, I think this would be an interesting one, and, and anyone sort of feel free to pipe up. Why do you think it is that these European uh, companies just continuously find themselves in crippling debt. Well, why do you think it is in, in this kind of case? And, and to such a large degree, you know, 40% of, well, uh, you know, let's say, let, let, let's let's take a very conservative estimate. Let's say 30%. 30% of companies, um, you know, in, in Europe, unable to meet their, their debt expenses with profit. So they're literally paying more interest on their debts than they're making in profits, if I'm understanding this correctly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you find yourself in that kind of situation? What do you think the cause of it is? Well, um, just decades of bad monetary policy, essentially. Um, if you keep uh, financing companies that, um, that aren't profitable, um, and you do this through setting very low interest rates, right? Um, yeah. Eventually, you're going to find the problem has become even larger. And then you do it again, and the problem gets even larger. And you do it again, and eventually you get to a point where uh, there's um, there's no way to to uh, print the money without causing inflation. And and at that point, 
uh, I think we're going to start seeing um, nationalistic movements rise up all over Europe. And this is why I'm saying that we're going to have more exits from uh, the European Union because it's a direct uh, effect of, nat of uh, nationalistic tendencies in a country that they want sovereignty. And Europe yeah. is not a project of sovereignty. Now, um, now with with the to circle back to these these companies, um, would you say sort of it's it's one of those examples of we just sort of have an investing glut? You know, money was too easy to come by, and we just couldn't find a good place to stick it, so we we stuck it. You know, in two thousand eight. Uh, or leading up to 2008, you know, we had money that was so easy to come by and we had too much money to, that we knew what to do with. So we just sort of stuck it into, um, you know, increasingly dodgy, uh, you know, home loan products. Uh, and nowadays we're just sort of sticking it into increasingly dodgy businesses. Well, I mean, we, with, with each of those things that we've been sticking money into, um, uh, that money has also gone into the companies. So like, for example, with, um, with, uh, mortgages, uh, when mortgages are extremely cheap to get, it uh, means that all of the businesses that are in that, uh, that chain and in that industry, they have higher profits than they otherwise would have. And when they have higher profit profits than they otherwise would have, they have higher access to, to corporate debt. Um, so of course you then end up lending them more money than uh, what they actually would have have gotten otherwise. Yeah, we um, see this time and time again. I mean, this, that's a historical trend. That's a, it's like one of the like most repeatable uh, historical features that Matthias just described. Uh, I have a book that I call Crisis Economics that uh, you know just lays out in such clear terms that uh, you know this is this is a thing that will always happen uh, when you know, there is this cheap debt and, uh, and, but I guess that's, yeah, that's all I have to add for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they've, they've been, they've been cursed by the fact that, um, you know, at least in, let's say the United States, um, you know, there was a period obviously around, um, the global financial crisis where interest rates were incredibly low, but they, uh, they eventually sort of raised back up, but Europe was hit by obviously the global financial crisis and then the Eurozone crisis. And they've, you know, in many instances in many countries around Europe, um, you know, interest rates are negative. So um, they just loaded up on all of this, um, you know, cheap debt and, and now it's sort of coming back to bite them. Uh, Jesus Insider made a really good point. Um, and this is true for a lot of, uh, a lot of countries. Um, I know for the Netherlands, at least, companies are encouraged to take on debt uh, because they can detract interest from their profit, um, which is the same for, uh, you know, most uh, countries around the world, you know, you can detract interest expense from your, your operating profit. And, um, yeah, and that, but that's, uh, I mean, there's only up to a certain point at which, uh, it no longer becomes, uh, profitable. Uh, this is the M and M, uh, you know, theory. Um, and it, it's, uh, Merton and, uh, Miller, the theory, um, which basically, uh, says that corporate, uh, there's no difference between, uh, corporate debt and corporate equity at the end of the day, um, except for when it comes to uh, friction, which is uh, market friction. Uh, and there is an opportunity to increase profits by reducing uh, the uh, taxes they have to pay by taking on debt. And uh, the theory is you take on debt up to a certain point that you can manage. 
and a lot of companies have have done that. Um, however, it's not very easy to calculate or to know precisely where that point is. Um, is it because you want to you want to, you want it to be the optimal point? But what is the fundamentally the optimal point? Um, and you know, Matthias. Uh, and I, uh, I think Matthias would agree with me here that, you know, a lot of companies have missed that point. They've gone over, far over a bit, um, and they are verging into the territory that they can't support their debt. Yeah, but it also gets worse when we then, uh, I mean, the effect that, that there is of, um, of printing a, a bunch of money as well is that they'll go, they're going to have to increase taxes. And when they increase taxes, um, that that exacerbates that exacerbates that problem, right? Yeah, and I think the other thing is um, obviously uh, a serious problem is is it kind of handcuffs um, central banking institutions into keeping uh, interest rates low because if you've got a, a, a you know an economy so desperately dependent or so leveraged up um, on what is very very cheap money, um, if you raise those rates and that you know they're on variable rates with you know which a lot of commercial lending is or you know even a lot of home lending is um you're going to seriously seriously mess up um you know uh your economy so it's, it kind of almost puts you in um i wouldn't say golden handcuffs but it but it certainly it restricts your flexibility there Let, let's um, call it shit handcuffs because uh, what what you actually <laughs> end up doing is um is is locking yourself into keeping these zombie companies that are not allocating resources efficiently alive so yeah. you're, you're basically locking yourself to companies that are wasting money. Yeah, and it's really, it's, it's, a, rough, it's a rough sort of situation now. The answers aren't um, you know, necessarily easy because obviously if you're lowering uh, interest rates, the idea is that you want more money out there. You want to sort of give, you, uh, give your economy a bit of stimulation, but uh, you know, people have kind of you know, mistaken it for, um, you know, uh, it's it's a shot of adrenaline, not not life support. You can't keep your economy yeah. on low interest rates forever, um, because you're going to have some serious issues with coming back to it. And the other thing that I really wanted to discuss, and this is maybe just a personal pet peeve of mine that we can sort of put out into a public forum and discuss because it's really really interesting. And, and I promise it kind of semi pertains to France, which is, um, do you think the, do you think profits, the idea of a company making profit, has has almost become like a dirty word um, in our modern financial um, world? And we're hearing about companies that don't have any plans for profits. The companies that have, you know, um, no, no sort of, uh, no, no plan for for ever sort of turning a profit, or or companies that you know have kind of taken the model of let's say Amazon. All we're going to do is grow and grow and grow and take market share, and we're never ever um, going to turn around, but just keep on investing into us. Um, do you think there's any kind of semblance of that that's taking place in Europe? Because I think. Perhaps it's a different issue, but maybe we're sort of seeing the equivalent of it in um, in you know North America and and more sort of Western countries. It, it it's less of that in Europe than I would say that it is in North America. Um, uh, in Denmark, in particular, they do still ask you like, "What is your plan for um, for earning money?" But um, uh, in North America, I've had conversations with investors where when I've explained to them how we're going to or, um, you know, eventually come to a point where we'll pay out them, uh, pay out dividends. When I started the company and was raising money for, uh, for my current company, they they were just looking at me as if I was crazy. Like, no, no, we uh, don't do that here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh, like all all they wanted to know is just how I'm going to acquire clients, and I'm like, 
yeah, I, I, I've been talking to multiple other founders about this, and we've we've sort of coined this uh, term, which I don't know if other people have also coined. Maybe they have, but we basically call it VC socialism, because um, like these venture capitalists, they're they're like pumping money into projects that are never going to turn a profit ever. Yeah, and, it, and do you think that absurd. maybe? And I, I don't know whose money they're investing. But like, if I was an investor, <laughs> I'd be really angry. I mean, I, I think, think in that, California, maybe, there's yeah. a lot of pension think, funds it, they get the money from. Yeah, um, so yeah. it's <laughs> so, more right, like if you just throw a couple, holders. if you throw a couple bucks at at people, uh, you know, it's not that whole big of a deal. But when a lot of people start doing it, then suddenly we start realizing why some really stupid things get funded. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and do you think do you think maybe uh, that that's the point I was trying to get to? You know, hey, maybe that's a result of um, you know uh, people are needing to look for for crazier and crazier investments out there just because there's just you know this this glut of of easy money. Yeah, I mean, so, with with Uber, for example, they like the investors have basically just been paying people to ride cheap taxis for like multiple years now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many companies there are out there like this, but it's probably a lot. I mean, um, I'd imagine most of the Uber competitors are in the same boat because there's there's no sort of way that they could structure their company to be profitable compared to oh, Uber. Tech ones. Right here. Sorry. I mean, in general, also YouTube, right? Since we're on YouTube right now, there's just no <laughs> way that they can make money with their business model. Like they're they're hemorrhaging money. Yeah. Yeah. It's, don't say that otherwise I'll get demonetized. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just, nah. it's, it, it just just all part of what seems like corporate culture at the end of the day, and it's just lost on you know the average average uh, individual. Uh, yeah, and I can probably provide some insight into um, how yeah, the right VC works a little bit too, uh, just because you know I'm a I'm in the Silicon Valley tech center, and I work with a lot of those companies and clients. Um. So the way the VCs typically look at it, like you said, they are not focused on profitability, and that's because the metrics are not based off of free cash flow, and they never expect to get free cash flow from their investments. It's all about selling your company to the guy next door so that you can raise a new fund and show paper gains. Um, so if you remember back to SoftBank, before WeWork went completely bust, um, they had reported insane profits, but none of the profits were real. They were all paper gains based off of uh, frothy private valuations that they essentially sold to another VC firm, but they never actually liquidated their holdings. Um, so, and that's the issue. You, it's sort of like, honestly, it's a little bit like a Ponzi scheme where, <laughs> except the only difference is that nobody ends up making money uh, except for the except for the people who run the funds, not even the funds themselves. Because when you try an IPO, you don't get your money back uh, because the public markets aren't going to pay for a non-cash non flow generating business. Uh, but because you were able to show those paper gains, you can now start up a second fund uh, with a ton of assets under management. And all you really care about is your AUM because that's what you're generating fees from. And bizarre world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, the idea that we kind of live in a world where there's this much money sloshing around uh, between businesses that are kind of playing the game of, uh, you know, the next biggest fool. Um, <laughs> it's slightly unsettling, you know, it, it, it really yes. is. I just, I just realized now uh, why I did so awful uh, in 
doing this analysis of Twitter uh, when I started my grad uh, school project. So we did a evaluation of Twitter and, you know, how much should Twitter IPO for? Um, and yeah, we, my team just got our asses handed to us. Uh, at least it feels like it uh, to me. Uh, and, you know, what Ross was saying, uh, or sorry, uh, Econ Gamer, my bad, um, uh, was saying about metrics, you know, I'm, I'm looking back to it and yeah, it didn't, it didn't make any, uh, the metric, or I'm sorry, the, the cash flows didn't matter. Discounted cash flows didn't matter. The balance sheet didn't matter. What well, the end of the day was, uh, what uh, everyone was interested in was the metrics and why Twitter was, uh, how, how can you convert uh, these metrics to a price? Uh, which is, it's just fascinating uh, thing to think about. Uh, and I challenge anybody who can come up with a very definitive guide to converting these these uh, metrics that are non-financial to actual like future financial predictions. Yeah, I mean, it makes zero sense. They're, basically, what they're saying is, like with Uber, for example, oh, we have uh, you know a hundred million clients, however much, it's probably much more, right? But we have all these clients, and and we're not making anything on them right now, but. Uh, but uh, I, I promise we're going to be making money in the future. And okay. it just it makes no sense. Like, yeah. show me the money, show me you making money. And then uh, then I'll I'll uh, I'll tell you what you're worth. But until then, then uh, this is all just uh, a game of musical chairs for investors. <laughs> musical chairs with one chair. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's, it's um, especially tech companies. This is an interesting one that I've um, I'm actually sort of researching it because there's some differing opinions in the comments section here as to whether YouTube is actually profitable. Um, now, as of sort of 2015, um, the answer is absolutely fucking not. Um, it was massively losing money. It was, it was losing huge amounts of money. Um, as of 2020, apparently it made close to $15 billion in ad revenue. Um, uh, sorry, as of 2019, it made uh, $20 billion, uh, sorry, $15 billion in ad revenue. Um, but they're not sort of publicly listing the expense of the specific uh, institution of YouTube. They're kind of just blurring it all together with uh, with Google. So it's quite hard to discern if if uh, YouTube as an endeavor is actually sort of profitable. Um, but was making massive losses. Do you know Do you know how much it costs to stream um, a video? Oh yeah, and to maintain the infrastructure and and you know imagine how many uh, imagine how many hard drives are out there just full of uh, you know, useless, useless videos of of people's cats or whatever it is. Um, you know how much is is uploaded. But um, as as a hypothetical, um, you had to you had to sort of think. I think YouTube was originally acquired by Google for like one point five billion dollars. Uh, does anyone know when it was acquired by Google? If you know in the comment section, like, or if you can Google, it I think it was around two thousand seven. And we can also just Google this. It was. Um, well, I think it was made in two thousand seven. No, it was made earlier than that. Um, there you go. I'm sure someone in the comment section will tell us. Please do, guys. Um, Somebody else will Google this, don't worry. Yeah, or I can hear <laughs> madly sort of tip-tapping away. 2006? That's when it was required? Acquired. It was acquired in 2006. I just Googled it. Wow, look at that. So, yeah. wow, geez. Yeah, 2006 is what the comment section is saying That's as well. Quick so quick typing. Yeah. So it's one of those, <laughs> one of those instances where... Um, Hey, for sure, um, we are seeing um, 
you know, look, they, they acquired it for like $1.65 I think. Uh, but now it's making $15 billion a year. Sure, its expenses are probably $20 billion a year and it's probably hemorrhaging money, but that's okay because Google's still madly profitable. They can kind of tank it. But um, eventually, do you sort of see, uh, especially with tech companies, you know, like cloud service providers, software as a service providers, um, institutions like Twitter, uh, Uber, um, eventually technology will get cheaper. So the technology that it requires to house this much video in 2007 uh, would have been astronomically more expensive than um, what it's what's required to house this much video in 2020, just because you know, hard drives are a lot denser and a lot cheaper. Uh, networking technology is a lot better. Uh, and maybe that's their plan for profitability, just sort of like keep it up until hopefully technology makes it um, one of those things where it's just cheaper to, to operate. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a hypothetical? Because I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe I'm just trying to dissect the mind of these these crazy people that seem so. smarter than me. But honestly, uh... the the reason I don't think so is because <clears throat> as time goes on, they've also added uh, higher stream quality to the platforms. Like four K is already there, and I see no reason why they're not also going to be adding eight K at some point. Um, and the, these videos uh, take exponentially more um, more uh, bandwidth to stream. It's the bandwidth, by the way, that's the real cost here. So just to give you an idea of what it costs for um, uh, if I was to set up uh, a YouTube clone and use AWS, for example, if I, if I use S3 buckets and I'm streaming 720p videos, then a thousand streams of a 10 minute video would cost something like 4.2 US dollars. And the, the CPM that uh, Google is making right now is something like uh, $3 per thousand views. And, yeah, and this is yeah. just with 720p. Then if we're talking full HD or 4K videos or 8K videos, uh, I, I just don't see how also with advertising becoming cheaper and cheaper because they're all, they have competition there as well, right? And the way they make money is through is through advertising. So I don't I don't see how this is going to become profitable at any point. Yeah, it's kind of a pessimistic for you, but um, but yeah, I think you you yeah. you you're probably maybe you're right. Maybe it's just like a vanity product for Google. It's just one of those extra things in their arsenal. The same way that but could you, know, you imagine if tomorrow it's announced that YouTube's going to shut down? You think oh, uh, everyone would be up in arms about it, and suddenly they're willing to pay quite a little bit of money for it. <laughs> Hey, you know, you, you could be you could be right. Um, honestly, you could be right, right? Uh, I think it's things. about power. Honestly, I think this is a psychic profit project for them. And they, they like having the power over the greatest media platform on earth. I think that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Uh, maybe uh, it's, it's like it's impossible to get into their mind. But you would have thought, you know, obviously... Uh, you know, a public company like Google, you know, they, they're filled with very smart people, and you know, at the end of the day, they're a publicly traded company with a, you know, a, um, you know, uh, beholden to shareholders that should be able to sort of facilitate this. Sort of it just, it just really does boggle my mind. Now we've they completely can sway elections with this. They, they can sway elections with this That's platform. That's true. Yeah, like the, the the amount of power that you get from having the greatest media platform on earth is, uh, I mean. It, it's power that probably nobody, like no private person has wielded that much power ever in history. Yeah. I mean, I suppose uh, Rupert Murdoch in the same way, he, I think he keeps like, you know, hundreds of newspapers uh, going that are just 
terribly like you know either just breaking even or, or losing money purely because he he likes the power of you know being able to sway elections and uh you know push his sort of particular round of politics so maybe maybe you're right man it, it boggles my mind maybe i just don't understand it because i'm a i'm a mere mortal um that needs to pay my bills but uh it really is one of those those really interesting topics um but it is all we have time for and i apologize to anyone that wanted to ask questions about france because we completely got sidetracked as i promised we absolutely would um but uh you know it's just one of those things maybe maybe we'll, we'll discuss it sort of further now um captain Locke will be very very angry at me if i don't mention it uh and maybe this is where a better discussion will take place uh, after this uh live stream goes down um we have sort of a q a session between uh the, the the fans over on our discord server so the links in the stream description for that go and join the discord server and you can talk to all of us directly um for a little while uh and then hopefully we'll answer some questions about france because uh poor france it got forgotten again isn't this exactly what i said happened on a on a global scale uh, also exactly. another note on that by the way we didn't receive any questions in the discord uh, channel that we've created for questions this time so if you have questions uh, the videos get posted ahead of time. You have a couple of days in between when the video is posted and, and when we have the stream. So please sign up for Discord and find the channel that uh, is, uh, I think it's called E Video Questions, and post your yes. question in there so that it'll be included in the stream. Beautiful. All right. Uh, so good night, guys. Thanks for all the questions. Thanks to all of our panelists that have come on as always. And we will see you next Saturday for whatever it is the videos that I put out this week are. Cheers, guys. Cool. All right. See yeah. you then.